0: My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com
1: I'm Nils Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, How can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. So in today's episode, we're going to dive into the what, the how and the why of the Eat for the Planet book. And I'm sitting here with uh, Gene Stone, my co-author. Gene, firstly, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Oh, thank you for letting me be here. So this book, you know, for me, it was my first published book. I have one other book I've written that will never be published. Um, You never know. I don't think it should be published. Well, then you do know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in your case, this is your 460th book or something. What's the number? (laughs) I guess like 700 or something.
2: Um, (laughs) No, actually, this is I've lost count. It's about 45.
1: 45. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you've definitely been down this road before. Um, this was my first time. And I must say, this is uh, it, was, it was a fun experience, as much fun as writing a book and working with a publisher and getting it all from the start line, which was, I think, nearly two years ago when we got together. To the finish line, which is now when the book is published, uh, it's it given me a new sense of appreciation for the publishing world uh, and the work that you've been doing for many, many years.
2: Um, appreciation is a good way of, uh, <laughs> I, I'll go with that word, because what most people don't realize is that publishing a book isn't just simply writing a book. Publishing a book involves so much more, just from the very beginning, coming up with the right idea, coming up with the best way of writing it. But then there's also the business part of it. It's coming up with the right agent. It's sending the book out. It's going to meetings and dealing with publishers, finding the right publisher, dealing with a publisher, dealing with the editor, dealing with the marketing people. (laughs) It's kind of an endless process. And the fact is, two years later, we're still in the middle of it because we have a long way to go.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, for me, it was, uh, I, I come from the world of online media where things happen within a matter of minutes, if you want them to happen in a matter of minutes. And, uh, I felt like right in the beginning, the first few months were mostly spent me saying, all right, what's happening. And you kept saying, well, it's going to take a few weeks. Um, and starting with the proposal phase, when we were thinking of the idea behind the book and, uh. And I'd be like, all right, we come up with a proposal. We give it to a publisher. When are we going to hear back from them? Right. Uh, and you'd be like, no, this is, this is going to take weeks and weeks and weeks.
2: <laughs> you know, I just recently moved from New York to Hudson. And one of the things people keep telling me is I have to drop New York time and take up Hudson time <laughs> because it's a little, you know, it's in the country here. Well, I tell the same thing basically to people about publishing. You have to drop regular time and start thinking about publishing time. Books are not a quick business. Now, I did once write a book in five days and had it published a week later. Mm. I like instant books. That was about Bush. And then earlier, uh, well, two years ago I wrote the book on Trump, the yeah. Trump survival guide. That was also the, basically a, a month process. But for the most part, you have to realize that even if no matter what kind of schedule you want, basically you are probably going to take at least a year to write a book. And then at least another year for the publisher to take that manuscript and publish it
1: well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, the process after you even feel like you've turned in your um, manuscript, um, I wasn't prepared for the time that was going to take from that point till we felt like we had something uh, that was final. And what surprised me was even in the final days, we were still scrambling and making edits mm-hmm. when I thought the book was kind of ready six months ago. So uh, well, was... there's
2: that process that, again, that you learn when you do a book. It's you turn in a manuscript and that's just part of turning in a book, then you have to go through copy editing, which can be very rigorous. Um, You have to also go through, well, actually, if you have a good editor, the editor first will go over the book. And we were very lucky at Abrams to have a good editor who helped us with the book. Um, Then there's, as you discovered, all of the galleys we had to go through and Mm -hmm. making more corrections and then seeing galleys again and then more corrections. That process is much more arduous and more necessary then you you might think it's not like the book is set the moment you turn it in it's a very organic process that keeps changing as you also discovered until the very 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 last minute
1: yeah and you somehow i mean i went in thinking we'd have a lot more control over some small things that we didn't Uh, but in the end i think it's the uh looking back i think it all was needed and we needed all those different people involved and their input. And sometimes we may have disagreed on some things, but I'm very proud of what we've um, put together. Everything mm-hmm. from the cover to the contents. Um, so let's dive into some of that um, today. Let's start first with maybe, you know, for the sake of the listener who may hopefully ha- has the book already, um, but if they don't, they should uh, go get the book. It's available everywhere books are sold. It's called "Eat for the Planet," uh, and we are the co-authors of the book. Um, more importantly, when did you start thinking about food and the environment? When did this come up in your mind, and when did you think we, we needed a book around this? Um, and I can tell why I did, but let's start with you.
2: I became vegan maybe about, I'd say, 12 years ago when I met Rip Esselstyn, and I worked with him on the Engine 2 Diet. And then through Rip, I met Brian Wendell, ended up working on uh, writing the book for Forks Over Knives. Uh, through Brian and rip. I met Jean Bauer. I wrote, uh, living the farm sanctuary life with Jean. I wrote, uh, mercy for animals with Nathan Runkle, uh, how not to die with Michael Greger, these books and, and, and other books too, that I'm proud of and, and like, but, um, these books were all in the area of uh, a plant-based whole food diet as it relates to health and as it relates to animal protection. But I was noticing that, um, that third pillar of why people, Adopt a plant-based diet. The environment. There really wasn't a popular book on the subject, and so maybe five years ago, I started thinking there really needs to be, and I would like to be involved in the process of uh, creating that book. I uh, I hadn't hadn't met you yet, but I did talk to a few other people about the potential of becoming my co-author on that, and you know, sort of didn't obviously work. Sometimes some people were busy, some people didn't want to do it, some people I discovered were the wrong people, and then um. You came to a uh, party, I think, at my house for, mm-hmm. for Michael Greger, and uh, we had lunch, and it turned out you've been thinking about the exact same thing.
1: I, I wouldn't say I was thinking of a book necessarily, but um, I first um, started changing the way I ate back in 2010. That's nearly eight years ago now, uh, because I learned about deforestation and the environment, and I sort of became obsessed with this, this subject matter and then learned about the health benefits of eating this way. And of course, um, the billions of animals that are killed every year. And spent about three years just thinking about the issue, reading about it, and then launched One Green Planet in 2013. But I felt that, you know, even though all these facts and research reports and scientific evidence existed out there, enough people were not making the environmental connection. So back in 2015, we launched a campaign called Eat for the Planet, which was uh, social media campaign, we had a hashtag and we tried to tell people that here's the environmental connection. And if you get it, you should choose to eat plant-based foods. And when you do eat plant-based foods, use the hashtag. Um, and we assumed, well, more people are going to learn about it and it'll, it'll change everything. A lot more work needed to be done. And I'm surprised, you know, I've been surprised the last few years that so many people out there still don't get the environmental connection. And I really felt that we had been writing so many articles about it, covering the issue on One Green Planet. Uh, we also started noticing there's this whole new plant-based food industry arising. But yet, surprisingly, there wasn't one book that I could turn to that was presenting these facts in a way that would uh, be you know, easily digestible and someone could read it and quickly understand what the issues are and understand the severity of the problem we're facing um, and then hopefully do something about it. So... When I met you and you had the same idea to me, it was um, it was almost perfect. Right. Um, you know, I felt like I had a book's worth of information, but uh, I had never written a book and I never knew what was involved. Most importantly, as you said earlier, it's not so much about writing a book. Everyone probably could write a book, but uh, the biggest trick is understanding how the publishing world works and and getting it to. Uh, that finish line, which can sometimes take years. And in our case, I think it's almost been two years since we first met and got started uh, and had that lunch, and uh, and here we are. The book is uh, is now published, and uh, I'm very excited to talk more about it.
2: Mm-hmm. One of the things that uh, is part of the publishing process, again, is that it isn't just simply writing the book and dealing with the publisher. Once you've written the book, you then really have to assume you're going to spend a good deal of your life promoting it. No publisher wants an author who is just going to walk away, and no author really should have a subject they want to walk away from. Mm-hmm. So publishing a book is, again, a long process, and just because we now have the book out doesn't mean that we're not still in the middle of the process and we have a long way to go. I'd like to think that a book like this, if uh, if we're lucky, will catch on and, and will be part of the conversation for years to come.
1: Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, initially... We spent a lot of time, I think think this may be useful for the listener to hear hear about, but in the first few months when we were working on our proposal, we spent a lot of time, even before we we, we drafted that proposal, was to think about what was the best way to take all the scientific knowledge, these stats, these facts, and distill it into a compelling book. And um, I was just trying to think through some of those earlier ideas. Um, We had some pretty crazy ideas right in the beginning. Um, Do you remember any of them?
2: You know, you were just reminding me of one of them, which I completely forgot.
1: Well, <laughs> uh, the one where we, the earth is narrating oh, uh, right. what has happened to uh, to uh, to herself after we have destroyed it um, because of our food choices and kind of like a narrative fiction sort mm-hmm. of story in a way to communicate what we've done to it.
2: Well, I think it was um, something that we both agreed on right away, that we didn't want this to be a 400 page tome that was just going to be full of facts and dry and uh difficult to read and so the effort in the beginning was how how do we make a book that is um important and 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 vital but is something that uh people aren't going to be afraid of picking up because it's either too heavy or it sounds too heavy
1: yeah and i this is what i loved about our collaboration is because You came in with a very clear idea on how you wanted to do this book. And the world that I come from, it's all about taking complicated facts and distilling it into quick, digestible pieces of content, whether it is a 30-second video or a short article or a social media post. So I remember initially thinking, this is perfect. I mean, I want to create a book that is made for the social media age, a book that is For people, and I jokingly say this to a lot of people, this is a book for people who don't like reading books. Right. Um, Well,
2: that's one reason why I really wanted the publisher, Abrams. Um, Another thing that uh, if you're not part of the industry, you might not realize is that uh, different publishers have different specialties, and uh, their expertise varies by subject matter and by design. Abrams is known for being... um, a very design oriented company. And I think at one point we decided that we really wanted this book to be very graphic, very illustration heavy. And so Abrams seemed like the right publisher to go with. And I was very happy that uh, they also turned out to be the highest bidder.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I think they were a great partner to work with. And I think they got the idea very early on. And I, th- I was I was quite appreciative of the fact that the letters um, sort of take the lead and run with it. I, I didn't feel like we were being overtly, um, managed through the process. And, um, they kind of trusted in our ideas and our decision-making for most things, uh, and the places where they didn't, and they did want to make their decisions. I think it turned out for the best. Mm-hmm. So all in all, I think we ended up, we ended up with, the you know, when you work with the team, that's the best outcome you can hope for.
2: Yeah. And again, with, the with publishers, there is going to be a back and forth. Obviously, if you're writing a novel, it's possible that you turn the novel and it just gets published. But when you're working in nonfiction, um, if you have a good editor and you have a good staff behind that editor, there's going to be a lot of back and forth. And you're not going to agree with all of it. I think sometimes they had ideas that we didn't like um, and they backed down. There's sometimes we had ideas that they didn't like and they were probably correct. But it was a a constant um, conversation that I think led to the most part to the right decisions being made.
1: Yeah. And you know, at the end, we ended up with this, um, interesting format. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit more about why did we go with the, with the format that we went with and and the way we've divided the chapters and, and what we're trying to communicate really.
2: Well, what we wanted to do, um, besides obviously have a terrific text inside the book is have the right package so that unlike the normal size book with a book jacket, that would look like any other book. Um, we went for uh, what's called paper over boards. So it looks as if there should be a jacket, or maybe it is the jacket, but it isn't. Mm. It, it's just the cover of the book uh, with a terrific cover design. Um, and, and the book is smaller. We were thinking that we really wanted to appeal to a younger audience that may not always read books. And this is a really easy book for them to pick up. It's tablet-sized. Yeah. you know, With luck, they'll pick this up as much as they do pick up their tablet.
1: Yeah, and you know, I I was remember in the early meetings was very clear that we needed a size of a book um that was gonna make it easy for people to carry around and pass it along. You know, my goal with this book has always been we need something that is so packed with all the information you need that someone who reads this book can read it fairly quickly and then would be, you know, would want to pass it on to someone they know because it would wake them up and make them do something. And I think you know, I use the word weapon, which is probably too, too harsh of a word for this, but I think I wanted the book to be kind of a call to action. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I imagine, you know, it being passed around universities. Uh, and I hope people do that with this book. And I think we've done everything from the design to the, as you said, the jacket to the size, keeping in mind what is the easiest way to get this important message across. And if you look at the book, what what, what I love about it too, it's, it, it has this very friendly looking um uh kind of playful mm-hmm. uh character to it, and you know the subject matter is anything but
2: <laughs> <I guess>. fun
1: <laughs> sure, sure. so um d- d- let's talk about the chapters. I mean we went through seven, we don't need to go into details, but i we kind of laid it out into um you know how do we capture this the breadth of the problem we're facing right now, so seven chapters each addressing one particular issue um and you know here's why I think our collaboration really worked out well is because we were you know we had the subject matter in terms of what is the let's take for example the the impact of factory farming on deforestation and we knew what the impact of factory farming is on land use and water but how do you close out each chapter making sure that people took away something with it that that is going to want them to con- not just continue reading but also that underscores the points that we're making when we're laying out problems and the last thing i wanted was just to spew out all the problems and facts and then kind of leave the person shocked mm-hmm. with no clear answer as to what is the benefit, what is the solution? And secondly, what is the benefit of the solution? So the, the idea to end the chapters the way that we did was actually, I remember you brought it up, saying we needed to come up with doomsday scenarios. Do you remember mm-hmm. that?
2: Yes, I do. Um, and we had actually um, tailed them back a little bit because I think when we first wrote them, they were a little too doomsday. <laughs> we don't really want to scare people too far away. Uh, And then we balance that off with um, what happens if you do eat for the planet. So first it's what happens if we don't, which is a kind of a frightening scenario. And then what happens if you do, which is a upbeat and uh, I think optimistic scenario.
1: Yeah. And you have to, I think it's a crucial when we talk about this issue is to, um, you know, I'm very aware of the fact that it can get very depressing. Um, If you truly sit and think, you read through. Let's just take the chap, first chapter, and you read through the doomsday scenario. There, it is frightening stuff. And you know, yes, we paint a possible scenario, but you know, you talk to anyone who understands anything about what's happening right now with climate change or with the way the rate at which we're destroying our forests or the rate at which we are uh, make using up our freshwater resources, they will tell you that these are all possibilities. And we paint a picture for the year 2050. And if anyone who's ever heard any episode on this podcast knows i'm always thinking 30 years down the line um because i think we either will have a world worth living in then or we're going to be in this terrible place and i think the book color kind of follows that format um and we paint this terrible scenario tw- in 2050 under each chapter and then we offer um a better looking utopian not even necessarily utopian but kind of a practical scenario where the world could be if we all change the way we eat right now,
2: remember uh, at one point, because language is so important, the that uh, doomsday scenario had once been called "What happens if we keep eating this way?" and then we changed it to the subjunctive, <laughs> What could happen? Because we really did want to modify the uh, the, the fright factor. Yeah, um, and I think that's important because th- th- we're not trying to scare people, we're not trying to terrify them. We're, we're trying to inform. And definitely give them a sense that, yeah, this is an extremely important subject, and even more importantly, the reader can do something about it.
1: Yeah, and most people have asked me, who are very new to the subject matter, who who don't necessarily understand, they've asked me, how is it that we even got to this place? And I think that was very important for us to kind of address right in the beginning of the book. And if you read the book, you'll see a trend. Uh, we talk about two causes, really. It's the rise in technology and the rise of our population on this planet. And, you know... I think it's important to frame that because if anyone going into this book, um, thinks this is just a collection of facts that's going to make you more informed, it is, but it also paints a clear story as to how we got here and how we can end up on a better path to a better future. And how we got here is really the industrial revolution. And, you know, we went, uh, for the first 200,000 years on this planet, things were largely Okay. And then we went from, a. it took about 200,000 years for us to get a population of 1 billion people. And then we went to 7 billion just in the next 200 years. Mm-hmm. And so also in this those 200 years, we went from, you know, hand extraction of resource, using our hands to extract resources from our planet to machine-driven methods of extraction. And I think that at the end of the day is what the book talks about, which is, And I've probably said this before, but when you go from um, using fire and axes to clear out um, forest to uh, grow crops and to manage animals um, or to do some form of agriculture, you go from that to using machines that basically decimate forests. They're forest-eliminating machines, essentially, or when you go from like a fisherman with a fishing net in a tiny boat to these uh, multi-million dollar shipping vessels that use sonar technology and you go from a farmer with a butcher's blade to these mechanized deboning, milking, and butchering of animals, you end up in the place where we are today, where our population now is 7.5 billion and we need to slaughter about 60 billion animals to feed us on this meat-heavy diet. And that's the reality. Right. So that's, you know, to me that was very important to bring up and because I'm... um, a lot of people assume technology is the cause of all our problems. I think it, it is to a certain extent, but we can also use it to be uh, part of the solution. And I think um, in the past, the work that's been done in the space has been able to put forth all these statistics. But I think what we were trying to go with this book was to draw these connections that were previously never made before. So yes, of course, people know greenhouse gas emissions. They know animal agriculture, or they should know that Animal agriculture causes more greenhouse gas emissions than all of transportation. But that's just one part of the problem. And this is a crucial part that I hope people take away from this book is that, you know, when you use up our fresh water, you're going to lead to water scarcity. And when you have water scarcity, you're going to end up with uh, food scarcity because you need fresh water to grow food. When you cause air pollution and water pollution, you're going to end up with. Um, leading to disease amongst humans. And so does, you know, at the end of the day, food scarcity also causes disease. Mm -hmm. And then when you use up all our land and you make it impossible to grow any crops on that land, again, you're going to end up with food scarcity and disease. And that's the crucial part here is how does all of this interconnect with each other and cause problems that we don't even necessarily see if we're myopically only focused on, say, greenhouse gas emissions or water pollution. And I think that's, you know, there's this one chart we have, the cause and effect um, graphic, uh, an infographic that we have in the book that I think captures it at a very high level. But, you know, my hope really is that people who read the book and read the doomsday scenarios and then read the, the positive scenarios walk away understanding that this is all interconnected. You can solve one problem, but you need to shift the way we eat to solve all of them.
2: I agree with, obviously, everything he's just said because it's in the book that we just wrote. (laughs) Uh, And for those of you who haven't been enthralled yet into buying the book, the way the chapters are divided are the issues of land. We talk about water, food, energy and emissions, air and water pollution, deforestation, and then species extinction. And as Neil says, we talk about each one individually and then how they all work together. And again, it's not that, You're destroying the planet every time you eat a hamburger, as much as we just are hoping that you'll make more conscious choices. We're trying to make the reader aware of what their choices mean, why they're making their food choices, the effect that they have on the planet, and hoping that they'll change. By reading this book, maybe they'll have half as much meat or a quarter as much meat or if we're very lucky, they'll become a whole food plant-based eater.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about the solution. You know, of course, the book illustrates all the problems, and I kind of, at a very high level, went through some of it right now. I'm hoping a lot of people listening already know the problems and are working towards some of the solutions. What is the solution that we offer in the book? And, you know, let's talk about why that is the right way to approach things and and why we went with that.
2: Well, at the end of the book, we have a three-step plan, which we are calling uh, Moderate-Replace and embrace. And embrace. It's easy to remember. You can't possibly forget that. Um, I have worked with many people who are very vehement about dropping all meat, animal-based agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I I myself have done that. Again, we're not saying you have to do this right away. The the first step is to moderate your diet. Think about it. Make these conscious choices. Think about what you're eating. Where does your food come from? What is the price of that food? Not the monetary price, but the price in terms of all the other issues mentioned in the book. And start making some decisions that would moderate your impact on the planet.
1: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that um, I was—we discussed this early um, on—is that one of the things I always talk about is we need to get away from this— Tribal thinking around food, where we assume just because someone else eats differently um, because they don't know as much as you do, that the only solution is for them to jump to eating the way you do once they've been told certain facts. And I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at the world. And um, also from a sustainability standpoint, I wanted, I think it's important that we bring in a, a rational solution that can be adopted by anyone no matter where they are in the process so if you're going from uh, eating meat three times a day and you reduce that to once or maybe once a week you're already making a, a, a huge step in the positive direction
2: well i think that's why we um, made the next step replace because again we're not saying stop eating mm-hmm. um, we don't want people to stop eating but now that you're thinking about your food choices and you're moderating your selection of animal-based meats and other products uh th- there's an extraordinary number of uh replacements available it's not like you have to eat a salad every day which might have been true in 1980 did you were at the uh, expo yeah um tell it's us a little a, bit about
1: that it's you know it's a whole new world out there that i don't think uh, enough people appreciate that there's already so many companies working on solutions and consumers are demanding it. And I think we're seeing early signs. um, Of course, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about it. And we've talked to a lot of those companies already. But we're seeing early signs that there is a conscious shift happening away from uh, products that are meat, dairy and egg heavy. And there's various reasons for it. Part of it is environmental. Part of it is people are making the connection between food and their own health and thanks to several of the books that you've co-written a lot more people are now aware that eating plant-based um most of the time if not all the time is probably the best thing you can do for your diet and then most importantly i think from um you know we live in a capitalistic society and we live in a world where if the companies in that i control our food system start to recognize that uh, firstly people want something that is more plant-based secondly it requires less resources and um, can make them the same or possibly more money down the line then why wouldn't they shift and i think we're seeing signs of you know every you know companies that even would traditionally not have plant-based products are getting into this space i mean we have even the meat industry that's now investing in companies like beyond meat um that are producing solutions that are plant that are meat but made from plants and we're, the whole paradigm is shifting and i think we're at that early stage of this whole new industry rising where you will get people who may never go all plant-based but won't realize that they've been buying um you know um buying butter that just happens to be dairy free or they've been uh, buying a mayo that happens to not have egg in it i often tell to say this to a lot of people is that You know, while the healthiest way to eat possibly is whole food plant-based, there's no arguing that. And I think most people can agree on that. At least 80%, 90% whole food plant-based, you're going to do great for your health. Now, what do you do with that remaining 10, 20%, right? And some people are still going to eat cheese and they're going to eat butter and they're going to eat pasta and pizza. What if you replace them with the plant-based options? And there, there's products out there now Plenty of them. I mean, you walk through the plant-based or vegan cheese aisle, and I almost don't know which brands to try because there are too many. And a lot of people I know still eat meat but choose to buy a vegan mayo or they choose to buy plant-based cheese because, you know, as opposed to meat, I think there's absolutely no reason anyone should want to consume dairy in their diet. meat yeah, the companies that are producing the plant-based options maybe still haven't perfected their products, but they're going to get there. But dairy, there's absolutely no need for it. And that explains why the plant-based, um, the, the sort of the dairy-free milk space has now captured nearly 10% of the overall market. So it, we're in a very interesting situation. It also
2: right explains now. why, uh, I was just reading recently, that the uh, milk business is um, threatening to sue over the use of the word milk. You always know that you're doing very well When you start being threatened with lawsuits, the same way the uh, egg industry went after uh, Hampton Creek and threatened to sue them over the use of the word mayonnaise or mayo. So you, you know you're succeeding when the opposition can only think of suing you as an alternative to actually producing products that are good.
1: Yeah, like and Unilever eventually launched their own vegan mayo. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like like Gandhi said, I think famously that first they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Right. So I think we're experiencing that now. Where there's
2: still some laughter.
1: There is laughter. There's still some fighting left, but you know, there's so many signs. um, Maple Leaf Foods, which is Canada's biggest meat processor, literally just bought two of the biggest recently in the last year. Bought two of the biggest. plant-based food companies, Light Life and, um, and Field Roast, I believe, or Gardein. Yeah, they all have been. So Gardein has been acquired, Light Life right. has been acquired, Field Roast has been acquired, and Sweet Earth, Enlightened Foods, were acquired by Nestle of all companies. Um, so we are in... So well, the point I'm trying to make is that we are... This isn't about convincing people to eat the way that maybe you and I eat. If they do that, some people will. Some people will read this book and decide overnight that I get it and I don't want to be part of this system and I'm just going to shift all the way. But you have to recognize most people don't even know what they're eating today. They don't think about what they're eating. They buy food that they're used to buying for the last several years that they've been alive or they've grown up eating. They don't know what's in the nutrition facts label. That's a bigger problem where people are just sort of not as aware. And that's shifting. And I think it's especially shifting amongst young people um i read recently that nearly what half of millennials are cutting down on meat uh and that's where we are in this world where i think people are ready to talk about um a solution where we are shifting our entire food system to one that is dominated by plant-based foods and if um if this book does even a, like a little bit you know 10% role in convincing more people to Try some product that they previously never tried. If you're going to buy cheese, why don't you try a plant-based version and see if you like it? And and
2: that's why this third step, embrace. Mm -hmm. That's really what you're talking about right now is um, embrace this move. Uh, Enjoy it. Go out there. People don't realize. I, I was startled when I discovered how many vegetables and fruits were out there that I didn't even know about. And it's the same thing for grains. It's for legumes. You discover that instead of being limited by your choices suddenly you're aware of so much more food so many more healthy options than you ever realized that you really have an opportunity to embrace a healthier lifestyle and a healthier diet that just tastes really good this isn't about deprivation it's really about embracing a new kind of enjoyment of your diet
1: yeah and i think you know from a sustainability standpoint but at the end of the day the book talks about sustainability um I do want to address any concerns people may have, assuming that we are recommending uh, a shift away from certain products to other products um, and whether they, too, have an environmental toll. And the fact of the matter is all agriculture has an environmental impact. So, you know, by no means are we saying that there is no impact with your diet. By virtue of you being alive on this planet, you're going to make an impact. Now, the question is, how much of an impact do you want that to be? And I think the facts are clear in this book that and because we talk about the factory farming system. And the reason we focus on that is because that is 99% of all meat, dairy, and eggs that's produced. So I don't even want to waste time talking about whether grass-fed beef is good or bad because it I don't think it matters. And even if it because that's such a small seg small portion of the overall meat and dairy that's consumed that I don't think it's worth time spending on that. Let's focus on the bigger problem. And secondly, if you do want to... If we do address that in the book, is that if you, if you do shift to grass-fed or pasture-raised meat, we still don't address all the issues. You may solve some of the issues, whether it is uh, sequestering carbon or managing the soil better, but you still need the land, you still need the water, and you still end up with all these other interconnected problems. But at the end of the day, I'm not trying to say that is better or worse or bad necessarily, if you can afford to make that choice. And as we know, most of those products are more, exper- are more expensive. Um, the the issue really with this book and what we're trying to do is to get to a solution that works for everyone. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone, no matter what socioeconomic status and everywhere in the world. Because the solution is simple. Shift away from meat and dairy, choose plant-based packaged foods when you do choose packaged foods, and then eat whole plant-based foods uh, to the extent that you have access to them and buy local if you can. And of course, that is a huge spectrum there, but you can be as good as you can. At the end of the day, not everyone is going to be perfect. Neither am I. So um, anything to add there in terms of um, questions you've gotten from people who don't seem to understand why this is a more sustainable choice uh, in the short term and in the long term for us and the planet?
2: Well, I think the, um, the reason we wrote this book is to address the issue that most people haven't thought about this very much. So when I have been talking about this book, um, I, I haven't run into uh, a lot of questions. Um, and in the past, most of the people who I've met who have adopted a whole food plant-based diet have done it for um, animal protection or for health reasons. What we're trying to do here is create a new audience. And what I'm hoping is that my environmental friends, and I have a lot of friends who are very environmentally conscious, who work for NRDC or the Wilderness Society or some of these other terrific environmental groups, um, think about this part of it too, because they don't, or they haven't so far. Um, I have noticed, however, that for instance, my niece who uh, graduated recently from Brown, um, she has gone whole food plant based and she did it for the environment and her friends at Brown did it. And that's one of the things that makes me most optimistic about the future is of course, I think health is extremely important and certainly animal protection, but we wouldn't have either without the environment. So I'm really hoping what this book does is convince people of everything you've been saying so far. There's a solid relationship between eating a, uh, agriculture the um, standard agricultural meat-based products um animal-based products and and, uh, and our planet's health
1: yeah and and at the end of the day i think of the health and the environmental issues to be very interconnected because um you can talk about health and be very short-sighted and and just talk about individual health but if you're talking about health of uh, large populations if you're thinking anyone's thinking about what what our public health um, challenges are going to be down the line um, i kind of briefly rushed through some of the connections but at the end of the day when you see that our use of water our use of uh, land and our um, pollution of the air because of our terrible factory farming system if it takes us to a place where we end up having um, food shortages because Our population is also growing, and that's another point we illustrate throughout the book, which is we have 7.5 billion people today, but that 30 years down the line, when I keep talking about 2050, we're going to be nearly 10 billion people. And with more and more people in the developing world choosing to eat meat-heavy diets, we're going to end up in a place where we won't be able to feed the planet without um, basically destroying our life support systems uh, and destroying our oceans and destroying our rainforests. and. This is a crucial point, but you may not care about, for whatever reason, there may be someone listening who doesn't care about uh, the oceans or doesn't care about clean rivers and breathing clean air. I don't know why you wouldn't. But if you have kids and if you care about them, or if you have a family and you want to think of what world they will live in 10, 20, 30 years down the line, you've got to start thinking hard about this problem because it's not about the planet necessarily to be honest i think the planet's going to survive no matter what we eat uh we are the ones who are going to be in trouble so well, the,
2: the book easily could have been called eat for your future <laughs>
1: yeah. you know that's why i think people a lot of people assume the you know an environmental argument is somehow for uh someone who's uh a nature lover and and who really is a tree hugger who wants to preserve uh, our natural resources. You may be all that you don't have to be, you could be living in your concrete jungle, very happy about uh, sitting and uh, watching Netflix and getting meals delivered to you. It's totally fine, but that world is threatened. We just don't see it now. Right. Uh, and I think that's the problem. We are so caught up in the present that we don't see that impact, and even if you think you're only thinking about your own lifetime, uh, that's fine. But if you do have anyone else you care about that is younger than you, you have to start thinking about what future you're gonna leave for them. And more importantly, if you have kids, when when your kids are, you know, years from now, are gonna look back and ask you, what were you doing when all of this was happening? What were you eating when? The world was, um, you know, we, we had this, we are pretty much the last generation, I think, that has a chance to change course. And what is beautiful about changing course here is that the solution is so simple. And it is actually so delicious too most of the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, increasingly becoming more delicious. So mm-hmm. to me, it's, you know, for us, it's a bit of a no brainer. Uh, we've been on this path for a while. But the question is, how do you get more people on this path without them feeling that they need to make a giant leap into from meat eater to vegan overnight? I don't think that's necessary. I think people can start where they need to and go as far as they want to. And I think increasingly with the options that are available in the market today in terms of food, uh, it's going to become easier and easier and uh, to eat Predominantly plant-based. if Well, not that's inherently. why I'd
2: like to think that um, you keep talking about 2050. Mm-hmm. Um, that in 2050, uh, the standard American diet will no longer be sad (sad), but it will be much more heavily plant-based. Um, I, I, I see that as not just um, a possibility. I see it as a necessity, and I think it will happen. I'm not an optimistic person, but I do. I, I just feel that they're really isn't a choice and that slowly people will realize that and i'm not saying that everyone is going to be you know vegan going around talking about their peas and their salads um part of this is going to be because the replacements for uh animal-based products the replacement meats or the replacement cheeses are going to be um delicious and affordable and easily accessible so that the diet of a plant-based whole food person it will be similar to somebody eating animal products now, they might not even know it. Mm-hmm. They may not care. But nonetheless, they'll be eating these products and and loving them.
1: Yeah. And I think that's why making a change in your diet is sometimes going to end up becoming a... Def- without pe- people, people are, What I'm trying to say is people are going to start changing their diet without even realizing that they're consciously doing that. Right. Because they will be trying a lot of these products just because they are good and they taste good and they in many cases don't have several of the added problems from a health standpoint that most animal products tend to have so it kind of is a is a win-win and I think we end up um we'll probably end up in a better place in a few years from now so let's I know we kind of bounced around a few places in terms of um talking about the book I'd love to um get your sense on what you hope the overall impact is if you could really um if you could wish for some concrete steps to happen in the next few years as a result of uh, people learning about the issues we talk about in this book as a result of spending time trying these foods um what do you hope that impact's going to be
2: well As I've said several times, I would love it if everybody was uh, having their uh, plant-based whole food diet. Um, But again, more importantly, it's just I would love to see people making conscious choices, thinking about their food. I don't think most people do think. They don't think about where it comes from, they don't think about what it is. I would love to see that change so that when people eat, they realize this extraordinary gift they're having, this gift of nutrition this gift of nourishment, this gift of feeling fulfilled. And where does it come from? And why is it on their plate? What is their relationship to it? Most people, I'm afraid, whether we like it or not, just guzzle down their food. They're on their way to work or they stop at some fast food place and food just becomes something they need to do in the meantime to get from point A to point B. And instead, it would just be wonderful if we go back to a time or we advance to a time where where food has meaning and, and food... Connects us to the world, it connects us to other sentient beings, it connects us to the environment, and it connects us to everyone else. So, um, again, my hope is that somehow this consciousness becomes raised, which sounds a little too hippy dippy. And I'm sorry (laughs) I just said that, but I I do look forward to people just being more aware. And I'm really, really hoping this book will help.
1: Yeah, and that's the first step. The more people learn, the more, um, there's going to be demand for plant-based foods. And I think to add to that, really, I completely agree with what you said. I don't disagree with that. Uh, Just to add to that, I think, I hope we can also, as a result of people becoming more aware of what they're eating, we can help encourage this new uh, food industry that's emerging, that's creating better products, that is sort of um, a solution to this massive problem right now where we have, where people... Most people in this country and increasingly around the world are eating meat and you know dairy-heavy diets, and instead they will choose some of those staples in their diet that were typically as a, a byproduct or a product of the factory farming industry. Will choose a plant-based option instead, and I hope we can encourage more startups and more um, small. Um, entrepreneurs to get into the food industry to establish better offerings so that we are able to replace literally everything you see in a grocery store by default all of it will end up plant-based and I think as a result of those two things one is people becoming more conscious the industry uh, offering better products at a better price point and of course tasting better we will then eventually change policies and I think that tends to be slower but you can't forget about the fact that another reason why meat and dairy and eggs is, is so cheap today is because it is so heavily subsidized. Um, and we won't, we don't need to go into all the reason why reasons why that has happened, but that's the world we are in right now. And I think increasingly as we see more uh, growth in the plant-based food space, we're going to see the f- big food industry also start to put pressure on the gov- our governments to, Subsidized crops and food that actually is nourishing us, doing good for us, versus uh, putting us in that one of those doomsday scenarios that we play out into the, the end of each of our chapters.
2: Somehow, even after writing this book, both of us have a optimistic sense of uh, the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is it's funny that you bring that up because I remember in one of our at the end of our first lunch meeting, uh, we. Uh, you said to me that you were um, you were a pessimist I am uh, and I said I'm a recovering pessimist trying to be an optimist um, and I think I I I can't help but be hopeful um, at the end of the day I don't know how this is going to play out I, I don't think that we have um, necessarily a, the perfect solution um, but we have a solution and I think we are trying and I think that gives me hope that at least I'm not wasting my time and we're not wasting our time telling people another reason to go run and hide. There's enough reasons out there in the world right now to ignore the news, to feel helpless and to feel like there is absolutely um, we're all headed. We're all doomed. There's no future for us. Uh, and there's plenty of reasons for that. And, and you know, but in some days I may agree with them. But at the same time, there's no point. As long as we're here and we're still um, breathing and living and uh, able to talk and able to think and write, we ought to at least use those little skills that we have to uh, create something that hopefully gives people some sort of a glimmer um, of a better future. And I think that's. Um, I think we we both went into this kind of having that, being acutely aware that things are pretty bad. And we are facing an existential crisis. But our goal was people walk away from this book feeling that they have the power to do something. And sometimes to show people that they have the power, you have to tell them how dark it is.
2: So there you go. Here's a solution to pessimism. Read this book yeah then you'll become an optimist also
1: yeah and in this in this day and age in the world that we're living in right now we need uh we need optimism and we i think certainly we, do and we need uh optimism with some practicality you know, i'm not just saying hey everything's going to be perfect no we've got to work hard we've got to create this new industry and we've got to encourage more people to choose these products or we're never going to end up in that better place so let's talk about that better place now let's end with uh, something i close all my podcasts with and and I am, I'm excited to finally bring that question up in this conversation because we've been talking about 2050 as a theme and I've used that as a theme throughout all my podcasts so far and I will continue to going forward. What is your vision of uh, our food system in the year 2050? And you, you kind of touched on it, but I'd like you to kind of sum it up. What do you hope for when it comes to the year 2050?
2: Well, I really do hope that by the time we get to 2050, that the number of people eating a predominantly whole food plant-based diet will will increase significantly. Again, they may not know that they're eating a whole food plant-based diet, but they will be doing it because again, it's affordable, accessible, and delicious. And I really think that it's a, um, it's a strong possibility. So again, not being an optimist, I am optimistic that this may well happen.
1: Yeah, I think I would have uh, done my small part if I made you a little bit more optimistic. A so, little bit. A little yeah. bit, that's enough. Um, you know, I really think that if we get it right and if more people get on board to on this train that has definitely left the station, and I mean by that, I mean the plant-based food industry is rising um, and pe- more people are making these choices, we are going to end up with a new food system where we are able to feed our growing population. It could be 10 billion people even. And we're going to be able to feed 10 billion people without destroying our planet's life support systems, without destroying our oceans, without decimating our rainforests, and ensuring that we still have some clean water and air and land um, for people who live on our planet. Firstly, that's, I think, what's going to happen. And secondly, back to what we kind of talked about in the beginning from a technology standpoint, I think this new food system, technology is going to play a positive role versus the negative role it's played in the last 200 years. And I think technology is going to uh, improve our lives. It's going to nourish us with food in convenient ways with instead of actually notoriously being used to create unhealthy, cheap, fast food. And I think you are right on the fact that we're going to be people are going to be eating predominantly plant based uh, and meat and dairy, uh, as it is, is going to be redefined, and we won't. We'll realize we don't need an animal to produce those end products that we desire. uh, Plant based leading the way, and of course, if cell cultured meat reaches the market and is at a at a reasonable price point, I think that'll play a huge role as well. And we're going to, you know. The net result is going to be real, we'll have a, this is my utopian vision now, we're going to have a, a healthy population of people that are living in uh, in natu- in balance with the environment around them, which has definitely not happened in the last 200 years.
2: No, it hasn't. But and, uh, you are talking like a true
1: optimist. <laughs> so if anything, um, this, I think, you know, I hope people pick up this book and, um, if they feel like they already know all of this or um, feel like they already believe in all of this, uh, buy it for a friend, um, pass it along.
2: And please, if uh, you have any questions, both Noel and I are online. You can reach us on the web. You can reach us all kinds of ways. Both of us would be happy to engage in discussions. Um, it's a very important topic to us and really hope it becomes important to you.
1: Yeah, thank you, Gene. And I think, you know, thank you for... Um, for making this even possible for uh, getting together and collaborating on this process. It's been uh, a true pleasure to work with you. It's been a lot of fun and innocent. vice versa. And uh, you know, I'm excited that we're able to join forces and use our collective, you know, individual skills and combine them uh, to put out something that I, I think we both are pretty proud of. And uh, I hope we'll, um, years from now looking back, will have made uh, a significant difference in people's lives. Ditto.